Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello, and welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, your creator and host. Scott's dad and massive supporter of this show, Barry Hemingway, passed away this week after an illness. So with us for this episode is my wife, Carol. Our condolences to the Hemingways and to the rest of those who called him a friend. Rest in peace, Barry. I will miss your post in the Yumber Yard. We had some good laughs. Yeah, Barry was always good for a giggle. Totally. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Mmm, it's delicious. Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the US or UK, text 741741. The service will match you with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. Beginning at 7.19 p.m., Atlantic Daylight Time on the evening of October 4, 1967, an airline pilot reported seeing an unidentified flying object heading east over southern Quebec. About 30 minutes later, calls began coming into the local authorities reporting strange lights in the sky over the Atlantic Ocean along Nova Scotia's south shore. The sightings continued until 11.20 p.m. that evening when something large, crashed into the water just off Shag Harbor, a fishing village on Nova Scotia's southernmost tip. Witnesses believe that it may have been a plane crash, and they saw something floating on the ocean's surface. Searchers that night attended the scene in their boats. They were unable to find anything conclusive. The thing had sunk. There was no wreckage on the surface, only an oily yellow foam. The mysterious and odd events of that evening are one of Canada's most enduring and well-documented UFO Sightings You are listening to Dark Poutine Episode 150, The Shag Harbor UFO Incident. Have you heard of this one? No, but I already know why they came to Nova Scotia. Lobster. They they came for the lobster? Yeah, I already know. There you go. Something had been happening in Nova Scotia's skies for a short while before the Shag Harbor occurrence. According to an article in the Chronicle Herald newspaper published on October 7, 1967, the UFO reports on the night of October 4th were not the first. Quote, It was the third and by far most dramatic sighting of UFOs in Nova Scotian skies in the past 10 days. Others were over Armdale Rotary a week ago, Thursday, and in Dartmouth the same night as the Shag Harbor sighting. Cool. So there's three sightings. Next time we go to Nova Scotia, we need to go to all three sighting spots just to say we were there. Well, we usually do go through the Armdale Rotary and you're terrified every time we go. (laughs) Oh, that thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, we can check that off the list. Done. It's like the world's biggest roundabout. Oh, gosh. Well, it's not the world's biggest because there's Compared to the ones we have here, it's like four little streets. The one around the Arc de Triomphe is bigger. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it is very confusing if you've never driven a roundabout with multiple lanes. Yeah. As I grew up on Nova Scotia's South Shore, I am familiar with this story, and people around Bridgewater even claim to have had sightings that night. 
I recall one story of a Lunenburg County man who was out for a drive and he claimed to have seen a football-shaped craft around three times longer than his car. The thing glowed orange and was moving quickly, flying only a few meters off the surface of the ocean along the highway leading towards Shelburne and Shag Harbor beyond. The man said that the object kept pace with him for a time, but suddenly sped off at a high rate of speed. Only after hearing of the incident on local news the next day did the man realize what he might have seen. Oh, what? That's what, imagine watching the news, just be like, hey, I saw that. I saw, I think I saw a UFO. <laughs> but then if you don't tell anybody the night that it happened, yeah. people are going to say, oh yeah, you're just that guy who's hopping on to... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned before you've never heard of the Shag Harbor incident before now. No. No? No. I guess they didn't teach that in school in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> they did not. <laughs> yeah, and they probably don't teach it in Alberta where you're from either. Exactly. So. Thankfully, there has been a lot of documentation archived on this case in newspapers and websites by UFO researchers, several authors, and even the Canadian government. Really? The site roswellproof.com has covered the incident heavily and offers an excellent timeline into the events using Chris Stiles and Don Ledger's book, Dark Object, the World's Only Government-Documented UFO Crash, from which we draw heavily. Got it. So here's how things started that night. At 7.19 p.m., Air Canada Flight 305 was flying along between Sherbrooke and Saint-Jean, Quebec. They were approximately 50 kilometers east of Montreal and 40 kilometers north of Vermont and about 640 kilometers west of Shag Harbor. The plane, a Douglas DC-8, was cruising on a west-northwest heading at an altitude of 12,000 feet at 256 knots. Visibility was good, the skies were mostly clear, with only a few thin, wispy clouds beneath the plane. Out of the corner of his eye, to his left and to the south, Captain Pierre-Guy Charbonneau saw a flash of light. He turned to look and, quote, saw a well-lit orange rectangular object followed by a string of smaller lights, like the tail of a kite, flying on a parallel course about 20 degrees above the horizon. He called co-pilot Ralph's attention to it. There seemed to be a large explosion near the rectangular object. It turned into a big, white, ball-shaped cloud, quickly turned red, then violet, then blue. Two minutes later, 7.21 p.m., there was a second explosion, orange in color, bigger and higher than the first that faded to blue. The smaller, trailing lights broke formation and began to dance around the explosion spheres like fireflies. The pilots watched for several minutes as the second pear-shaped cloud, glowing pale blue, drifted eastward. Despite career concerns, both pilots wrote up comprehensive reports with times and drawings. Weather balloons. They always told you it was weather balloons. I remember that in the news. It was deemed a weather balloon. So career concerns are typically fears of being deemed somehow unfit to fly. I'm not sure how I would be comfortable reporting a UFO sighting as a pilot. I would not want the organization I was flying for to think I might be hallucinating or off my rocker. Would you report that? Or would you just say what you said? It was a weather balloon. That's exactly what I would say. I would be just like, don't be alarmed. It's just a weather balloon changing colors and doing weird things and emitting explosions. And weather dancing balloon. around like fireflies. It had to be a weather balloon. Obviously, it's a weather balloon. Right. As you were. Air Canada pilots were not the only aviators to have spotted the UFO that night. According to a global news report, quote, Ralph Lowinger, one of the pilots aboard Pan Am Flight 160, a Boeing 707 cargo aircraft, was at 33,000 feet that same night. They saw the same row of flashing lights over the Gulf of Maine as they approached the coast of Nova Scotia. Lowinger and the other crew members never reported their sighting. Their story came to light a few years ago when Chris Stiles, the author of Dark Object, tracked them down. So there you go. Not all pilots report that stuff, again, for that same reason, because they think people are going to say, you're cuckoo, let's take away your pilot's license. <laughs> And it, that makes me think, I wonder 
my uncle, who's a pilot, if he's ever seen UFOs. I've never asked him. And if he has, did he report them in? Stuart. <laughs> Stuart, you know who you are. Please let us know whether or not you've ever seen a UFO. You can tell us off the record. Off the record, and we won't publish this on the show. <laughs> The second reported sighting that night happened exactly a half hour after the Air Canada pilots had their encounter at 7.51 p.m. It was just outside Canadian Naval Air Station Shearwater, around two kilometers northeast of Halifax, over Eastern Passage, Nova Scotia. William Tebow and his brother were out looking at the stars that night when they spotted two dim lights flying high above the light clouds, which are around 3,700 meters. The objects were moving slowly along the coast and heading southwest from the northeast. The object trailing the first was the brighter of the two. Tebow, who worked for the Canadian division of the British-owned Ferry Aircraft Company, determined that the lights were higher than that expected of any commercial aircraft at an altitude somewhere between 15,000 and 30,000 meters. When Tebow reported the sighting to the local naval air station around 15 minutes later, he said that he was certain that these lights did not belong to any kind of aircraft that he was familiar with. This was the same object. If this was the same object, it had traveled more than 750 kilometers in 30 minutes. There were a few aircraft that could attain that speed in 1967. The USAF's Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird was one of them but it did not match the descriptions that witnesses were giving. That's weird. But also I kind of can't get over that the brothers were just out in 1967 looking at the stars together. Like, what? But people do that. <laughs> I know. I know, but I just forgot there was a time when people did that. Oh, just okay. Like you just happened to be outside. Why aren't you inside watching Netflix or playing video games? Right. Brothers. Because none of those things existed at right. that. Right. Entertainment was limited in 1967. And they made the reports 15 minutes after they saw yeah. it. So it wasn't like they waited for the news to happen. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden they're reporting things. Yeah. Another of the many reported sightings that night came around 8.30 near Mahone Bay, Nova Scotia, about 60 kilometers southwest of the earlier sighting by the Tebos. 12-year-old Daryl Dory and his mom and sister said they saw something in the night sky. From RoswellProof.com, quote, The Dorries watched an orange ball of light trailed by several smaller lights. The large light seemed to merge with one of the smaller ones. Then the small light seemed to blink back on and dart around the sky in rapid impossible maneuvers for a conventional object. Finally, the light left at high speed over the tree line toward the ocean. The acceleration was far greater than anything young Daryl Dory had seen in any air show, and he was also puzzled by the lack of sonic boom or any sound. He immediately wrote a report withdrawing. Dear Commander of CFB Greenwood, I am writing about the UFO. Investigator Chris Stiles was later to find Dory's letter in his search of Canadian UFO files at the Canadian National Archives in October 1994. Aw, that's the coolest. They kept it. Yeah, they kept this young man's uh, report of a UFO. That's the best. That is very cool. Top secret, and then there's a 12-year-old's drawing. I love it. <laughs> Isn't that neat? Stamped confidential. Captain Leo Howard Mersey... 45 of the fishing vessel MV Nickerson was at sea, 50 kilometers south of the Sambro Island Lighthouse, which itself is 40 kilometers south of Halifax and 2 kilometers off the coast. The Sambro Lighthouse is the oldest standing operating lighthouse in the Americas. Legislation to establish the lighthouse was passed at the first session of the Legislative Assembly of Nova Scotia in 1758, so Whoa. it's been there a long time. Mersey, his first mate, and 18 crew members noticed lights high in the sky to the north flying along the coast of the province. As well as being visible to the naked eye, the glowing red object also pinged clearly on the ship's radar, as did three other objects flying in an inverted triangle formation behind the leading light. They radioed the Canadian Coast Guard and the Halifax Harbour Master to report the sighting. Isn't that crazy? Doo, 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 doo. Three days later, Mersey gave a report to RCMP Corporal J.F. Kovacs of the Lunenburg Detachment. 
The text of the captain's full statement is below. Quote, At about 9 p.m. on October 4, 1967, I noticed an object with three flashing lights. Radar indicated this object to be 16 miles away. It was very clear that night, and we could see the lights of Halifax. At the time, our boat was 32 miles south of the Sambro Light, and the object was approximately 16 miles northeast of us. He says at the time a lot. At the time, the Navy would do a lot of practicing in the area. At the same time, see again, there were three other objects on the radar and about six miles from the first object. I would say it disappeared at about 11 p.m. when it went up in the air. I could not see any shape or form to it because of the distance. When it went into the air, it only had one flashing light. While the object was on the water, or close to the water, it had three real bright flashing red lights. All the lights were red. I could not see any lights on the other three objects as they were only appearing on the radar. It is not unusual to see the Navy or aircraft dropping things into the water there. I had never seen anything like that before, but it sounds like the thing they are looking for down off Shelburne or Barrington Passage. When the object left, it went up into the air with only one red light. So it sounds like when he was giving his report, he was trying to explain it as he was talking about it because he couldn't believe what he'd seen. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. just sounds like, well, I've seen the Navy out there. It, it had to be something like that. So, What are the Navy dropping into the ocean? I need to know. <laughs> well, it sounds like it happens all the time. He says he sees them dropping things into the water there. Well, it could be targets. It could be anything like that oh. for yeah, maneuvers. They could be doing a search and rescue practice. They drop a mannequin. The other guys have to find it hmm. for search and rescue. It could be a number of things like that. The report went on to indicate that Captain Mersey is, quote, a reliable type individual and bears a good reputation in his community. So he's not just some clown who's making this report. And he was making the report as it was happening at that time. Yeah, and other people saw it at the same time, too. Right. There were his first mate and 18 crew members on the boat with him, all witnessing this. Hmm. According to the Halifax Chronicle Herald's headline story of October 7, 1967, at around 10 p.m., quote, an unidentified woman on her way home from work saw a bright round object in the sky moving from the Halifax-Dartmouth ferry landing north to south. She described it as bright, more vivid than a star, with an orange hue like a halo around the circumference. She looked at it when she got home through binoculars, and she saw it was not a star. Also, the orange hue was plainly visible. She didn't think it was a flying saucer. She assumed it was a satellite. The CFB Sharewater Control Tower said their radar was not being watched at the time estimated to have been between 9 and 10 p.m. And I'm curious why she wanted to stay anonymous. I probably would too. It's just like, I'm reporting this. I reported this at the time that it happened again, and uh, I don't want to look like a cuckoo bird. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. It was 1967. Yeah. And small town. What interests me is that nobody's watching the uh, radar between 9 and 10 p.m. when all this stuff is going on in Shearwater. Coffee break. Coffee break. Or maybe it's something that they've kept top secret. (gasps) Oh, God. Oh, that's true. We don't have the footage. We don't don't know what was going on. Wink, wink. (laughs) Ping. Also around 10 p.m. on the second floor of his Dartmouth home, Christopher Stiles, who was 12 years old at the time, was about to view the thing that would later bring him to write his book, Dark Object, and create an obsession inside him that made him one of the most foremost experts on the events of that night. So the author of that book was also 12 years old at the time and saw those lights. Cool. From roswellproof.com. Stiles looked over the harbor from his second-story window and saw a round object, glowing orange, like iron heated in a forge. It drifted up the harbor toward him. He could not see any form behind the glow when viewed through binoculars. Stiles ran out of the house to avoid losing sight of it. He could see the object drifting closer to the end of the harbor. Running further along, he saw the orange object drifting toward him, 
from the right just above the water. It was noiseless and he now realized it was 50 to 60 feet in diameter. It came closer to the shore, tracing the shoreline to within only 75 to 100 feet away and continued left, following the coast toward the Coast Guard complex. Finally, Stiles lost his nerve and ran home. The next day, he heard on the radio that many had seen and called in about the glowing orange ball. Who are they calling? The police? Who are they calling? They are calling the police. They're calling... Some people are calling the Navy. Some people are calling the uh, National Defense. Like, all of those kind of things. Yeah, I can just imagine the phone just ringing off the hook where, like, the night shift guys aren't used to having all these calls. The RCMP, poor (laughs) guys. At some point between 10.30 and 11 at Mason's Beach in Puffy Cup Cove, Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, a photographer named Will C. Eisner was hanging out with his friends Raymond Hiltz and St. Clair Croft. Puffy Cup Cove, is that real? It is. Adorable! Isn't that adorable? (laughs) According to RoswellProof.com, while attempting to burn an old sailboat on the beach, Eisner spotted strange lights to the west suspended above a ridge. There were three lights arranged in a tilted triangle. The bottom right and near left lights were amber. The apex was brilliant blue. There was no sound. Eisner convinced his friends to have a look. Lacking a tripod but improvising with his camera, he managed to take a five-minute time exposure of the lights. Then he watched them for several more minutes. Eventually, the lights disappeared after being motionless for about 15 minutes. So I looked and looked and looked. For his photos and I was unable to find them. I know I was just gonna ask the photos let's see it's just smears but still he like he had zero technology and he got something. Yeah it's weird that uh we can't find those photos anywhere. I, I, d- I think. Yeah I, d- I don't know somebody must have them so if you have them please post them in the Umberyard. <laughs> We'd love it. Yeah that would be great. Between 11 and 11.10 p.m. near Arthur Lake on Highway 355, 10 kilometers southwest of Weymouth, Nova Scotia, near the Bay of Fundy, about 59 kilometers southwest of Digby, on the southwestern end of Nova Scotia, there was another sighting. And this is quite a ways away. This is like 200 kilometers away from the Halifax sightings. So, oh. And this is in 10 minutes, 10 minutes later. Among these witnesses were Royal Canadian Mounted Police Constable Ian Andrew and three game wardens, Bert Green, Don Brown, and Sonny Wagner. There had been instances of deer jacking in the area, so the RCMP officer and the games wardens were on a stakeout looking for poachers. And deer jacking is shining of a powerful light into the eyes of a deer after dark at any time of the year with the intent to dazzle the animal, freeze it in its tracks, and illegally shoot it. The Nova Scotia government states no person shall shine a light having a voltage of more than four and one half volts in or upon any wildlife habitat not owned by the person at times when hunting is not permitted. End quote. So you can be charged just for shining a bright light into a field, but often only when deer jacking is the intent. So that cool, clear night, it was not light from a deer jacker that concerned the four. According to RoswellProof.com, the men saw, quote, an orange-colored light like a glowing ball of fire to the south and just above the tree line moving slowly. There were spark-like objects coming off it, but no sound. Constable Andrew saw it was an upside-down candle flame shape. He also remembered sparks and a corona around it. The estimated height was 200 to 300 feet. The men rejected the idea that it might be an airliner. The object finally disappeared over the tree line to the south. Constable Andrew explained he didn't file a report because of the paperwork. If he filed a report with RCMP HQ, he was also required to report to the air desk in Ottawa and the National Research Council. End quote. Poor form, Constable Andrew. Well, he just didn't want to do it. <laughs> Or he job. did, and they just quietly put it aside. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't think he, I think he actually just didn't do it. <laughs> it's 20 minutes at the end of his shift, man. He doesn't have time for all yeah, that paperwork. He wants to go home to bed. Exactly. It's late. Come on. Who else could have seen it? Oops. But again, they're all describing the exact same thing or something very similar. Yeah. So, sort of a corona around this thing. It's really weird, right? 
I think it's weird, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely weird. Hmm. Another large group sighting occurred sometime between 11 and 11.30 p.m. northwest of Briar Island and Digby Neck, Nova Scotia, in the Bay of Fundy, about 45 kilometers southwest of Weymouth, 90 kilometers southwest of Digby. A herring saner fleet of 15 boats and approximately 150 fishermen saw, quote, brilliant lights moving rapidly back and forth, end quote. One was, quote, a brilliant white light to the southeast, the size of the full moon, which gave off three brilliant yellow lights, forming a triangle around the larger light, end quote. The lights dipped and dove toward the water as the excited fishermen communicated with each other about what they were witnessing over their CB radios. One of the boats reported fears of collision with one of the objects. After a few minutes, the lights sped off to the southeast in the direction of Shag Harbor, a hundred kilometers away, where the evening sightings would later come to an end. Cool. Look out, it's coming right for us. <laughs> exactly. Oh, rad. But here's another 150 fishermen reporting this, and apparently a lot of people heard their radio chatter as well. Mm -hmm. Like, what the hell is that? Yeah, the big CB radio thing. Yeah, what's going on? <laughs> I can't even imagine. You're just out putting out your nets for uh, your herring, and here's this crazy lights is buzzing all around your boat. And you can't get away fast enough. There's no, no way. because you're putt-putting on your boat. It was around 11.20 p.m. when witnesses near Shag Harbor first saw lights in the sky, then heard what they believed was something large crashing into the water. Wait, what? And we'll take a break right here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. What are your thoughts, Carol? What was it? What crashed into the water? That's a great question. I need to know. We will get there. Just after 11 p.m., two teenagers driving along Highway 3 also saw lights in the sky. So Highway 3 was the main highway between uh, Halifax and Yarmouth at the time. So it's more of a scenic route and follows the coast. Highway 103 was the multi-lane highway that was put in later. And you've traveled on that one. And we've traveled on bits of the highway number three when we were sightseeing. Mm -hmm. From the Chronicle Herald newspaper, quote, I was with Norm Smith and we were driving in Shag Harbor from Cape Island, said David Kendricks, 18. When we got to Bear Point, we saw a bright light in the sky, sort of reddish orange. Kendricks said that two more lights appeared all in a row on a right decline of about 45 degrees. They came on in order, the lowest one first. They were pinpoints of light, not like flares, said Kendricks, and he said he had never seen anything like them before. He judged them to be two or three miles away in the southwest. They passed out of sight when he drove through a grove of trees. You know, Nova Scotian teenagers, because I've told you, we go out for <laughs> drives at night Naughty. a lot. <laughs> yeah, and we're usually doing naughty things. Speeding, uh, drinking and driving. Other which, things that can get you in trouble with the vehicles. Yeah. At about 11.20 p.m., also along Highway 3 in Lower Woods Harbor, one kilometer west of Shag Harbor, an 18-year-old fisherman named Lori Wickens, later president of the Shag Harbor Incident Society, and his four friends saw something that they would never forget. Wickens talked to Global News in October 2017 on the 50th anniversary of the event. Quote, There was four lights in a row and they were going on and off, says Wickens at the time. One would come on, then two, three, and four, and they'd all be off for a second, then come back on again. Sure he was about to witness an airline disaster, Wickens found a phone booth and called a local RCMP detachment. Questions were asked about his sobriety. But he wasn't drunk, and he was sure about what he'd seen. Several other people called the Mounties that night, and they all told the same story. 
Soon afterwards, Wickens was among a dozen or so people gathered at the water's edge, watching in amazement as a glowing orange sphere about the size of a city bus bobbed on the waves about 300 meters from the shore. At 11.20 p.m., it slipped beneath the surface without a sound. Three of those at the wharf were Mounties, one of them called Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax. A Coast Guard, a Coast Guard cutter was immediately dispatched to conduct a search, end quote. Maybe it was a blimp, but also... But a I blimp a would not fly around like that. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just trying to explain it, other than a weather balloon. Um, what's a Coast Guard cutter? Just a boat. Just oh, Like okay. a Coast Guard ship. What did you think it was? Did not know. I thought it was maybe some important position with the Coast Guard. I'm the cutter. Excuse me. No, it's a boat. <laughs> oh, boy. Yoinks. My wife is a landlubber. <laughs> yes. From roswellproof.com. Time, 11.25 p.m. Location, RCMP Detachment Barrington Passage. Witness, Corporal Victor Werbicki, duty officer. Werbicki was the senior officer in the RCMP Detachment Barrington Passage and was alone on duty, and took Wickens' call. Wickens told him, he thought, an airliner had crashed into the sound of Shag Harbor, where Bicky at first didn't believe him and thought he might be drunk. He took his number and told Wickens to stay by the phone. Immediately afterwards, where Bicky got another call from Mary Banks of Garon Point, overlooking the sound at Shag Harbor. She too had heard the whistling sound and a bang, saw something on the sound, and thought an airplane might have crashed. Another woman called to say that she and a friend had been driving south near the shore of Cape Sable Island, about 13 miles northeast of Shag Harbor. They also saw an object with flashing lights in sequence descending into the Shag Harbor area and thought it might have crashed. Then a man called from Bear Point, northeast of Shag Harbor, reporting a whistling sound, a flash of light, and a loud bang, and again thought something may have crashed near the harbor. Were Bicky called Wickens back and apologized for his earlier skepticism. Well, that was nice of him. Nice. He said he was dispatching two constables and himself to meet him at the Irish Moss plant in Shag Harbor. Wickens then expressed doubts as to whether the object really was an airliner. Werbicki called the only two RCMP officers in the area, Ron Pond and Ron O'Brien. They were driving east on Highway 3 right through Shag Harbor at the time of the crash. They were now about four miles east of Shag Harbor when they got the call to return to the office. When they got back, they were surprised at the reports of the crash since they had just gone through Shag Harbor and had seen nothing amiss. So these two cops didn't see anything. Of course, they were faced in the other direction, away from what was going on. Werbicki also called the RCMP subdivision in Halifax who called HQ in Ottawa. HQ filed a UFO report with the Air Force. The Air Force contacted the Rescue Coordination Center, RCC, in Halifax, who would attempt any rescues. Werbecki also expressed concerns about a possible plane crash, so Halifax was to check for any missing planes and get back to him, but there weren't any. There's a lot of people making reports at the time, so there had to have been something. Something happened. But what? What was it? Do you have any thoughts? What do you think it was? I like that they. Uh, it's also well documented. That's pretty cool, actually. So then it makes you think, okay, there was really something there. It wasn't, even though the first person that called in, the guy's like, are you drunk? But then everyone after that is like, oh, okay, so maybe not. Yeah, it's not some kid with a uh, pie plate on a string. <laughs> it's definitely it not that. No, I think we can rule that out. We can definitely rule that out. I think we can rule out a weather balloon, too. Okay, even though that's my favorite. That is your favorite. Um, blimp. Maybe. Could be a blimp, but that's a pretty fast-moving blimp. Yep. Some kind of military blimp. Boats captained and crewed by local fishermen, along with members of the RCMP, began making their way out toward where they had just seen the object slip beneath the waves. According to roswellproof.com, quote, by about 11.45 p.m. or within 25 minutes of the crash, the boats, about 100 feet apart, approached the crash area and entered a glittering yellow foam like shaving cream about three inches thick. On Shan's boat, one of the captains, young Norm Smith figured the foam to be about 80 feet wide and half a mile long. 
judging by the length of Shan's boat. It was oily to the touch and was not fuel or engine oil. Nobody had ever seen anything like it, and nobody knew what it was. Norm Smith did notice rising bubbles in one area as if something had sunk there, and it smelled of sulfur. Who touched it? Don't touch things. Don't touch weird things you've never seen before. What if it was like some kind of acid? Haven't you seen War of the Worlds or anything (laughs) like that? Yeah, you're touching something from outer space maybe is not good. You need your fingers. like Yeah, Yeah, your fingers are very important. Yeah, so I I like that the guy's like, hey, this doesn't feel right. You're just like, don't touch it. So what was this foam? It's really weird. I don't. I kind of, I'm trying to figure out what it was. I like that it's glittery. Yeah. Um, and it stunk of sulfur. Mm-hmm. So. Apparently it was glitter in it. People were really weirded out by it. And nobody kept a sample of it or anything because. It was in the water. In 1967, I guess you don't think that's important somehow. Or maybe you think that the divers and other people who may or may not come are going to find something anyway, so you don't have to keep anything. Yeah, but you're also not a scientist. You're just kind of experiencing this. Who knows how you're going to react in a situation? Touch it. Right? (laughs) The quote, yeah, just touch it. What is this? It may hurt me. I should touch it. This smells bad. I better touch it. (laughs) You've said that a few times, I think, in your life. They smell it anyway. The quote continues, Four more fishing boats joined the search and crisscrossed the area looking for survivors. Coast Guard Cutter 101, there's your boat, arrived at 12.30 a.m. Lawrence Smith, having overheard information from RCC, began to have serious doubts they were looking for a downed plane. By 10.20 a.m., the next morning, RCC was explicitly referring to the object as a UFO, having eliminated the possibility of a crashed airplane. Now, UFO is not does not indicate alien. UFO means unidentified flying object. So having a government official refer to something as a UFO is not as significant as saying, I saw a little green man and he handed me a sandwich. That's true, but I always forget that. I'm just, UFO equals aliens, which it doesn't. It just means it's something was in the sky and we can't identify what it is, which is so boring compared to aliens. Right. But now, if it's underwater, it's actually called a USO, which is an, an unidentified submerged object. Isn't I did that cool? not know that. There you go. So everybody, well, you and I both learned something new today. <laughs> At 4 a.m. October 5th, the search was temporarily called off so everyone could get some sleep. Nothing was turned up when the search resumed later the next morning. On October 6th, the Royal Canadian Fleet Diving Unit arrived. Four divers searched the area suspected to be the impact point. By the process of elimination, RCMP, RCC, and the air desk in Ottawa were now tagging the object as a UFO, end quote. Cool. So it was a UFO sighting, mm-hmm. and it remains to this day a UFO sighting. Therefore, aliens. No, Ugh, not necessarily. Please. A Department of Fisheries and Oceans report documented the incident and a few of the events that follows. It reads, quote, and this is an official document. Lower Woods Harbor, Nova Scotia. On October 4th, 1967, at 2345 hours, local RCMP Corporal Werbicki from Barrington Passage NS and six other witnesses sighted a large flying object. This object, in the time interval of approximately five minutes, flew down to the water, floated, and sank. The object was described as being in excess of 60 feet in diameter and carried four white lights spaced horizontally at a distance of 15 feet. The object, flying in an easterly direction when first sighted, descended rapidly to the water and produced a bright flash and impact. One light remained on the surface for a considerable time, but sank before a boat could reach it. The Rescue Coordination Center conducted a preliminary investigation and discounted the possibilities that the sighting was produced by an aircraft, flares, floats, or any other known objects. Maritime Command were asked on October 5th to conduct an investigation into the sighting, and at the present time, one officer and a diving team of three men are on the scene, aided by Coast Guard Cutter 101, signed W.W. W. Turner, Colonel, Director, 
operations. End quote. I feel like uh, the director of operations is a no-nonsense kind of guy, so... My name is W.W. Turner. <laughs> W.W. Turner. And I'm here to tell you folks that, uh, yeah. No aliens were found. Yeah. Oh, he's lying. According to the Winnipeg Free Press on October 9th, 1967, and it was on the front page, the search was officially called off. So this was national news. Quote, Shelburne, Nova Scotia. Canadian press, the search for a mysterious object that disappeared beneath the waters of Shag Harbor on the southern tip of Nova Scotia last Wednesday was terminated Sunday night, a Navy spokesman said. The team of seven Navy divers was to return to Halifax today, having found, quote, absolutely no clues, no trace of anything, end quote. That is disappointing. It is disappointing. I would have liked for them to have actually found, oh, it was a meteorite, or it was this, or it was that. They found nothing. It just, like, dissolved. Whatever it was, every little piece of it. Maybe it was a giant bath bomb. We have no idea. There were other UFO reports in the area a week later, on October 11th and 12th, but they did not end as spectacularly, nor were they as widespread as the ones on October 4th. So either they were people saying, oh, look, I see UFOs and wanted attention, Or something was really there, but it didn't crash this time. I mean, maybe if it was aliens or something, they had returned to look for their buddies who had crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, the first ship was just a scout, right? They lost the scout. They got to come back and find them. Exactly. Gone. There was, however, a poorly kept secret outside of Shelburne at the time. The existence of Canadian Forces Station CFS Shelburne. We all knew about it. Some of the local kids I knew visited it and were chased off by the soldiers there. The secret base, quote-unquote secret, was established during the Cold War as a top-secret SOS-US listening post to track Soviet submarine movements in the North Atlantic. The Cold War period was from the late 1940s until about 1990. And when the Cold War ended, the nuclear submarine threat diminished, the CFS Shelburne was closed in March 1995. Perhaps what happened there in the water had something to do with covert operations that were ongoing there. Perhaps the Canadian government does not see the point in releasing the real information to the people and has, for some reason, decided to keep the story alive. What? I don't know. I don't know either. But it's interesting that a secret base is nearby. It was just, it was kind of hidden off the road, in the woods, all that kind of stuff. Everybody, like I say, everybody who was local knew it was there, but nobody really talked about it. I'm suspicious of everyone in Nova Scotia right now. (laughs) You shouldn't be. (laughs) Nah, they're nice. Uh, Why didn't the divers find anything, though? So according to Global News, quote, In his 2001 book, Dark Object, Chris Stiles says he eventually interviewed former military insiders and members of the Navy's fleet diving unit, who told him the orange orb spotted in Shag Harbor had submerged under its own power and traveled to a spot on the seabed off Shelburne. In the book, Stiles' sources talk about a secret flotilla of American and Canadian ships dispatched to the area. There was speculation about Russian submarines and, yes, extraterrestrial visitors, but there was no hard evidence to back their claims. So if you want to learn more about what Chris Stiles found, read his book. I don't want to give away his secrets of his But I can answer that question. Why didn't the divers find anything, though? Because it's not a movie? I had to remind myself that, no, this really happened. There's not, like, a whole bunch of people just uh, waiting there for this incident to happen. It happened in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Well, that's not the middle of nowhere. It is the middle of the sea. Like, who's going to just be hanging out there except a few fishermen? Exactly. The Shag Harbor Incident Society, whose members include witnesses from that night so long ago, continue to keep the mystery alive by way of an annual festival that attracts hundreds of believers from around the world. According to the Society's website, quote, The organization was formed in the fall of 2006 with the goal of acquiring a permanent location to display accumulating information collected on the mysterious UFO that landed in the harbor decades earlier. So calling it a UFO, I am comfortable calling this a UFO. Me too. Isn't that weird? Yes. 
on June 16, 2007, the Society hosted the ribbon-cutting opening on its UFO museum in a temporary location inside the unused barn, which was donated by member Dorothy Nickerson. Though the building was humble and scrutiny surrounded the amount of visitors it would receive, the museum prospered and moved to its permanent location overlooking the harbor in early 2009. Today, the Society's UFO Museum sits patiently in its yellow-painted home, waiting for visitors to arrive to hear its fascinating tale and explore its hands-on artifacts. So we will be doing that the next time we go home. Yes, we will. And not only that, my little UFO section that I made in my Animal Crossing um, island on Oscar Isle, um, I'm going to make a sign that says Shag Harbor Incident to go underneath it. There you go. The next event will take place in 2021 in Yarmouth. It was postponed for in 2020 because, obviously, COVID-19, and they've moved it to October 2nd and 3rd, 2021. So if you want to go, if people want to go, that's when it's going to happen. Among the speakers set to attend include Nick Pope, who worked for the UK's Ministry of Defence, investigating UFOs and other mysteries officially for the British government, leading the media to call him the real Fox Mulder. (laughs) His presentation, titled The Inside Story of the British Government's UFO Project, promises to be packed full of information. As well, author Chris Stiles, who wrote the book Dark Object and had his own sighting 53 years ago, will be there to give a talk. So I would really like to meet Chris Stiles because I think that would be pretty cool. That would be cool. I couldn't, though. I'd get too nervous. But I think we should go. I should book the October 2nd and 3rd off. Yeah, let's book a week around that time. We'll do it. Oh my gosh, 2021 is going to be so fun. So that's it for this week's tale. How was that? That was totally cool because I didn't think I was all that interested in uh, UFOs. And now I'm going to like change my whole Oscar Island theme to uh, to uh, UFOs. Right? So Carol, just so everybody knows, is a big poo-pooer of things that <laughs> you, you can't see, touch, smell. Uh, which, you know, fair enough. If there's no empirical evidence about it, Carol doesn't believe it. Personally, I would like to believe that there is something. I I would love it if something was discovered. I don't think we've discovered everything. I would love it if we discovered that, yeah, there's there's the little green dudes visiting. Me Earth. too. I want to meet them. Just like I want to be, meet Bigfoot. Right. I met Bigfoot while playing Red Dead Redemption and I shot him. <laughs> that was mean. I begged you not to shoot Carol him. Carol cried when I, saw, I shot him. <laughs> Don't, Bigfoot. he's just a vegetarian. He's eating berries. Stop it. And I shot him. Jeez. Oh, Red I'm, Dead horsey. I'm, I'm a mean man. Yep. And that's it for this week's show. So let's get on to some voicemails. How about that? I think we should do a few voicemails. Let's hear it. If anybody actually. Maybe it's all crank calls. <laughs> they usually are. <laughs> No, we don't really ever have any crank calls, he said ominously. <laughs> uh, there's, There was the Joker that called once, and we've had some other weird calls, but oh, okay. none are real cranks. If you want to call and leave us a message, you can do so at one 327 5786 or one 877 And if your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. If it doesn't stand out, well, guess what? You won't. Don't call and ask for Shake Maboob. He will not play it. Shake Maboob. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, look at that. We didn't have anybody call us this week. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We did. Uh, Let's listen to this one. Hello, gentlemen. Um, My name's Mandy, um, and this doesn't need to go on the show, um, but I grew up in London, Ontario. And I just listened to the episode about Christina Klein. Strangely enough, um, my parents were godparents to um, one of Christina's best friends. Um, They grew up together, and um, them being godparents, um, we always called, me and this girl, always called each other best friends and god sisters and so i spent quite a bit of time with christina as well and it was uh i remember when she had her oldest daughter winter and i remember meeting that little girl 
Um, anyway, it was really touching, and I can think of my god sister now, who is still so broken uh, from losing her best friend. Um, and I'm really glad that you guys could see just how awful Victoria and Dustin were, and how kind and compassionate you were towards Christina and her children. So thank you. Um, I really appreciate, again, how gentle and kind you are to the victims. So go shit in your hat and have a good day. Wow. I know you said it doesn't have to go on the show, but I feel like it does have to go on the show. So thank you so much, Mandy. That was that was really kind and uh, insightful some insightful information about that particular case. Yeah, it's a real person. Yeah, and that's the thing. This is why we do the show. We do the show to show that these victims, uh, the people who are involved in these cases, victims and perpetrators, are all actual human beings um, who are involved in this. It's, yeah. Whew, that one was a little heavy. It was, but then she told us this shit in our hat at the end. So Which was, was amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, let's listen to another one. This looks like it's from Delaware. Oh. Where? Delaware. Delaware. Not underwear. <laughs> hey, I don't think the people of Delaware like it when you call their place underwear. I'm not. You said not underwear. Correct. I stand corrected. Right. It was not underwear. Hi, Mike and Scott. Name's Chris. I'm calling from a tiny little state in the U.S. known as Delaware. And I just wanted you both to know that as doctoral students at the University of Delaware in political science and disaster science, both my partner Cynthia and I have been spreading the gospel of Mike and Scott by sharing dark routine with all of our friends and family. And your podcast is beloved by all Delawareans who listen. Just wanted to call in and let you know that as Wilmington, Delaware becomes the American nation's next capital, we very much appreciate and support the necessary, progressive, and tasteful, non-exploitative work you all do at Dark Poutine. Carol and Joanna, too. We will do what we can to get your podcast into the ear of the president-elect or Joe as he goes by around here. Thanks for your educational and always hilarious show. Go poop in your toques, gentlemen. <laughs> A new day has dawned. Wow. I'm like the smartest people in the world call in. <laughs> Just like, wait, what? You do what? Oh, gosh. And That's he how I said feel my some... name. Yeah, he said your name. I yeah. know. Not to put Everything else aside, he said my name. It's like you're not self-centered or anything. Not at all. No, that's cool that uh, postdoctoral students are... Uh, Holy smarty pants. Yeah, we have a lot of that. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, I'm just some dumb guy. You don't anyway. even want to know how hard I tried to get through school and just couldn't do it, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you tried, but you had this problem with your bendy elbow exactly yeah. even without the bendy elbow i still am like can't get through it i can't oh, well. grind it out kudos to you <laughs> thank you so much and uh and it would be kind of fun if uh the joe joe as people call him around there <laughs> gave us a call and left a message oh my God. i would i would probably wet my pants or something i don't like even that. know if i, I could listen yeah i'd even be happy to get that other no we wouldn't that wouldn't make it on the show. I would boycott it. Okay. okay. No, I wouldn't. All right. Fair enough. Uh, thank you to anybody. Thank you to Delaware. Thank you to Delaware. We really appreciate that you took the time to give us a call and uh, you listen to the show and you're spreading the good word. We appreciate <laughs> that a lot. Have you heard the good news? It's and dark poutine. <laughs> You can leave us a voicemail at one 327 5786 or one 877 Please do it. We really do want to hear from you. Uh, I guess it's time for Patreon. Let's see about the Patreon folks. Oh, it looks like uh, we had a few patrons this week. Nice. Yeah. And so we're going to start with somebody from Casa Grande, Arizona. 
And her name is Tammy Joe Dixon. Thank you, Tammy Joe. Thanks, Tammy. Uh, what does Tammy Joe Dixon do in Casa Grande, Arizona? Casa Grande. Casa Grande. Um, she's actually looking for. Oh no, it's Arizona, uh, New Mexico. She was actually looking for Walt's uh, motorhome. Went missing. She well, was looking for that. She was looking for Walt from Breaking Bad, yes. his motorhome? His motorhome. It went missing. So she's looking for that stolen vehicle, missing vehicle. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's her life's passion. It's her work. Well, good, Tammy Joe. You go. You find that fictional find vehicle. Find it. <laughs> <laughs> it's fictional, though. Oh, well, we don't need to Dwayne, spoil this it is her whole, life, her whole life's work ruined? Next, we have Melissa Coliza, and she is from... Montreal, Quebec. Cool. I like the Caliza. Caliza. So what does Melissa do in Montreal? She's a rapper, a French rapper. They're the best. Like rapping Christmas presents? No, no. Oh. Like yo, 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 rapper, yo. So we, we, we. We, we. Oh la la. Tout très bien. Donne. Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> Try again. Yeah. Do the, do the shoe one. What's your one? Oh, is that the Spanish that you know? What? Donde esta la Oh, yeah, that's Spanish, not French. Yeah. She's not, she could be a Spanish rapper too, but <laughs> French is her main. There we go. Rapping. Well, language. thank you, Melissa. Next, we have Rui Rodriguez, and he is from Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Cool. Yeah, Rhode Island. Rhode Island. United States, smallest state. There you go. Yeah. And um, he used to work for the Long Island, oh, wrong medium. He works for the Rhode Island medium, he works not for the Long Island medium. Oh, what does he do for the Rhode Island medium? <laughs> okay, he's one of those guys that c collects the information for the plants in the, yeah. I know, I'm really busting it for him, but that's what he does. He finds all the information on the plants, and then those people provide information, and then they are like, what do you mean my granny is talking to me? Okay. Yep, so, that kind of medium. Say, Rui, I like Rhode Island. I've been there. I've never been. There you go. Next, we have Joy Kabasik, who has upgraded her patron what? to... Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Wow. Oh and she's from gosh. Stratford, Ontario. We've already talked about what she does for a living. But thank you so much, Joy, for upgrading your patronage. Joy. We really, really, really appreciate Prime Minister. That. Whoa. Yeah, Madam Prime Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Prime Minister. Nice. So we know what she does. She's the Prime Minister. And she does not speak moistly. <laughs> she's not speaking moistly on no. people. No, 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 no. Next we have... Someone whose name is only Robin. Oh, all right. And Robin is from Adelaide in Australia. Very nice. I don't know if Robin is a nice lady or I a nice man. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Because my cousin's name is Robin, but uh, Robin is my cousin is, is a nice man. He's a nice man. But uh, Robin could be a nice lady. I think so. Well, there Either you go. way, both are nice and generous. So what does Robin do? In Adelaide. Have you been to Adelaide? No. Mm-mm. Uh, no, where was I? Uh, Sydney. You, you were in Sydney. Sydney, <laughs> Where yeah. was I? The, where big, was the I? great big city that was there. <laughs> well, I started thinking Melbourne, but that's not where we went at all. We went to Sydney, went to the Sydney Opera House. Uh, Robin. You went to Cairns, too, didn't you? I did. I went to Cairns, which yeah. it just poured rain the whole time. Okay. So what does Robin do in Adelaide? <laughs> It's classic, but it's noble work. She's a didgeridoo cleaner. She's got a huge long pipe cleaner that she cleans all those didgeridoos nice and clean. Well, hopefully Robin is the she. So we I'm just assuming she's a she. Okay. If not, they <laughs> clean. Clean didgeridoos with the hugest pipe cleaner you've ever seen in your life. It's a didgeridoo cleaner. It is. <laughs> It's not a pipe cleaner anymore. It's a didgeridoo cleaner. Yeah, it ceases being a pipe cleaner and becomes a didgeridoo cleaner. Exactly. The minute you clean your didgeridoo. So I think all packages of pipe cleaners now, they need to be replaced with didgeridoo cleaner. Well, thank you so much, Robin. And we're sure you're nice. Whichever gender you choose. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good in the hood. Uh, next, let's see who's next. Oh, oh, we have... From Miramichi, 
in New Brunswick. Oh, cool. Kimber O'Brien. Oh, Kimber. Uh, Miramichi, we have talked about on the show. That's where Alan Legere, one of uh, my first serial killer interests, did his storming around, killing old ladies, beating them to death. Uh, we've already covered that on an episode. So what does Kimber O'Brien do in Miramichi? She's the log roller. So what does she... She's so the she's log a, roller. Wow. She's from that cartoon. Oh, I'm the log roller, log roller. She inspired it. Well, that's nice. She can go forward and backward and forward and backward and side to side just on the logs in the in the water there. You know what? what? I would I would step on the log and immediately end up face first in the water. <laughs> I have the balance of uh, not a log roller. It's acrobatics. It is acrobatics. It's a skill. And she started when she was three years old. Three? I know. She comes from a long line of log rollers. (laughs) Are there short lines of log rollers? (laughs) Could be if they weren't very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) That could be. Uh, Yes, if if your family fails at log rolling. And lots of concussed people. Oh, and lots of cold water because the water there is cold. The water in Miramichi is, yes. is probably it's pretty chilly freezing. in the winter for sure. If they're very, oh, if they're very brave, then they go on New Year's Day. Kind of like the polar bear swim, but it's the log roller swim. Oh. Yeah, but you got to stay, you can't go in the water there uh, January 1st. You'll freeze. Okay. Fair enough. Well, thank you very much, Kimber. And lastly, as far as patrons go, we have Rochelle Nib, and she's from Valleyview, Alberta. Oh, nice. And what does Rochelle do in Valleyville? She heads Valleyview. over to Vulcan for the big uh, space conventions there, and she's an event planner just only for Vulcan, the space carnival there that they have. Okay, there you go. Yeah. It's very so you're harkening back to our UFO I know, episode. see now it's gone into my uh, subconscious. There you go. Are you more open to the UFO thing now? Yes. Look at that. There you go. Um thank you so much to our patrons and thank you so much Rochelle Nib, the Vulcan event planner. Exactly. Yeah. She's got a big job to do. It's true. Yeah. So on to our donut money donors. First up we have Kenneth Crookshank. And where is Kenneth from? Where is <laughs> Kenneth from? Oh, Malawi. He's from Malawi. Where is Malawi, Carol? That is in Africa. Oh, wow. It's a long, thin country in southern Africa, squeezed between Mozambique, Zambia, and Tanzania. Well, fantastic. And what does Kenneth Crookshank do there? Oh, he's the guy that cleans the canoes after they go down the um, Mozambique River. Is it the yeah. river? Yes. Good. Perfect. Well, guess what? He's not from there. What? He actually left us a note. Thank you for putting out your fairly interesting podcast. <laughs> you do an okay job. <laughs> wow. Calm down with all your niceties there, Kenneth. Feel free to take a large <laughs> shit in your hats anytime. <laughs> Kenneth Crookshank. Four far Scotland. Ooh, far oh, far Scottish. Oh, nice. In truth, yours is the first podcast I've ever listened to and <gasps> find it really great. Oh, I take back my snide comment at the beginning. Uh-huh. Also, now that you have this accent, I find you very attractive. <laughs> I'm a bit upset as I have now caught up, which means I now have to actually wait for on the next one coming out. Keep up the good work. Oh, well, thank Aww, you. Oh, Kenneth Cruikshank, well done. Yeah, I still think maybe he has some connection to Malawi. He could. Yeah, he definitely yeah. could. I mean, you know. Exactly. It might not be wrong. You are you and Scott are never wrong about where you guys oh, think thank you. somebody is from. I know. Next, Cruikshank we have gave it away. somebody from Vermont, and her name is Dakota Harrington. I just wanted to say thank you for being my emotional support Canadians recently in these trying times in the U.S. Love Dakota from Vermont. Oh, Dakota from Dakota, Vermont. Yeah. I know, it's been tough. Tough little slog. It's pretty tough, actually, for us to watch, too. We're so. here for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, we love you guys south of the border on both sides. We love you guys. We only see purple. We don't see blue or red. That's right. <laughs> Are we allowed to talk about these things now? I don't know. I don't think we should. No. Let's pretend it's not happening. That's where I'm most happy. <laughs> Let's stick our heads back into the sand. <laughs> no. Dakota, we're here for you. We are here for you. 
Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your help to keep us doing what we do. And if you want to help keep Dark Poutine going, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. And if you don't already subscribe to the show, it mean a lot to us if you did. You can find us on any podcatcher and check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. We know some of you are. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Hey, now I have to go clean the bathroom. (laughs) Bye-bye, everybody. On showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copy can on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner. All new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.